welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Madden America. This is your host for today, Ayurthi Dhar. I am an assistant professor of psychology at the University of West Georgia and a spotlight interviewer for Mad in America. Now, anyone who's heard my interviews will probably know that I've been growing interested in the topic of industry corruption, especially in the side disciplines and weirdly enough in emergency medicine. But for that matter, I'm actually teaching a course in research explorations right now. So I'm really excited about our guest today, Dr. Eric Turner. Associate Professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the Oregon Health and Science University. He's also a senior scholar with OHSU's Center for Ethics in Healthcare. Dr. Turner has been an FDA reviewer and has dedicated his work and life to improving research transparency. He is especially known for his 2008 paper on publication bias in antidepressant trials. And we will talk about that and a lot more in his newer review, which was published just last year, I think. Dr. Turner, welcome to Mad in America. Uh, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. All right. So um, before we jump into your research, let me give our listeners and readers a little context and background. So let's go back a few years, right? In 2008, you, along with others, conducted a review of antidepressant trials to check for publication bias. Now, clinicians, researchers, and of course, most importantly, patients, service users, they need drug trials that accurately and truthfully tell them whether a drug works and also whether it has many adverse effects, like the question of efficacy and safety. In your initial review, you found massive problems in the way antidepressant trials were published or not published. So um, before we come to the newer work, could you tell us very quickly about what is publication bias? And we will get into it later, you know, the different types, but just like a quick understanding of what is publication bias for our listeners. Well, I guess to put it in um, simplest terms, I can I can think of a, just a, a picking and choosing as to what gets published and how it gets published. Uh, and picking and choosing by authors and uh, who are doing the trials and by journals. Yes, uh, both it, it takes two to tango. Right, absolutely. So... Um, in your older review, tell us what did you find and how did you actually conduct this research? What was the process? Well, um, as far as the process goes, we used uh, FDA uh, review documents and uh, the FDA puts up its uh, so-called drug approval packages when, when, a drug, when they approve a drug. And you can see all the results of all the trials that were, that were done, uh, which is not necessarily, which may or may not be published, which is the essence of publication bias. So um, we took a cohort of uh, antidepressant trials for 12 drugs. We tracked them into the published literature to see whether uh, each trial was published, and if so, how was it published? And uh, so was it published in a way that agreed with the FDA or not? And so we, for 12 drugs, there were 74 clinical trials. And we found that um, contrary to what you would gather from the published literature, if you only looked at the output of what wound up in the published literature, you would uh, have the impression that virtually all the trials were were positive, and that the drug always. And by positive, we mean that it it was uh, the drug demonstrated a statistical superiority to uh, the placebo uh, treatment uh, treatment arm. So it looked like the drugs couldn't fail. However, uh, if you look at the FDA review documents, you found that there were 
quite a few more trials that you didn't even know existed from looking at the published literature. And uh, furthermore, that the uh, the results, the way that the results panned out was 50-50 in terms of positive versus not positive. So 50% of the trials were uh, the drug did not, wasn't good enough to beat placebo. Uh, but you would never have known it from the published literature. So apart from, for example, not publishing work that that shows that the drug and the placebo, they're not statistically you know, different or there is no significance to this thing. Apart from just not publishing, what were the other things that you noticed? Like, I think you wrote about the results were spinned very often. Yeah, a number of the trials were, um, were, were spun. I, probably the most common maneuver, if you will, was uh, simply not publishing the trial. But it was also not at all uncommon to see uh, there were 11 trials, in fact, that were uh, that were negative and drug did not be placebo, yet look po- that were published and looked positive. And so what they had done is uh, use different, you know, statistical alchemy, if you will, to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. How about that? Um, yet, yet another uh, phrase, uh, putting lipstick on a pig. Sometimes I've in giving talks, I've talked about the, my uh, 11 pigs with lipstick and, uh, and then the colors of lipstick and what was the color of lipstick in this case and that case and how, how is this achieved? Thank you. So since you're talking about giving talks and, and talking about putting lipstick on pigs, let me ask you, um, what was the response of the, the academic and the psychiatric community when this paper came out? Like, what were you expecting? What was your response when you saw all of this problematic you know, research and publication bias. Well, I have to say that I personally, I wasn't shocked because my background was I had worked at the FDA. And so I had I already had a sneak preview into this phenomenon and realized that, uh, that there was this disconnect between what uh, clinicians were seeing and what F- the FDA reviewers were seeing and what, what was known to the FDA and the pharmaceutical industry. So they had this sort of little secret going on that the doctors and patients out there weren't uh, privy to. So anyway, yes, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't shocked. I didn't know how the numbers would stack up, obviously, until without doing the study. But I knew it, it wasn't going to be pretty. What about others? Like I said, the academic and medical and psychiatric community, when the paper came out, was there any pushback? How did people respond? Yeah, there were some... Um, I would say that the drug companies, uh, they hoped that it would blow over and it would be, um, and, and no, one, no one would notice. But uh, there were two problems with that strategy. One was that the paper was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, so um, it, which in turn gets uh, a lot of attention by the, uh, by the press. Uh, in, in other words, uh, the, the big names in media are generally going to look at all the journals, uh, journal articles published in a given issue. So it was, uh, uh, it, it was, it was noticed, and then, and then the press. Once the press got hold of it, 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 it got a lot of, it got international attention, and um, you know the major media markets, uh, the major media in. Uh, in the U.S. and also in, in other parts of the world as well, so they couldn't ignore it because it was creating a bit, uh, you know, a bit of a stir, and uh, and and so the, there were a few companies that uh, broke the silence and decided to uh, speak up and try to uh, to uh, to push back, and so one of the 
one, one of the arguments was that the negative studies were really not, really not so important after all. So uh, that they didn't deserve to be published. And because when uh, sometimes when a drug doesn't be placebo and there's another treatment arm in there, such as a drug that's already been approved, uh, I don't want to get too much in the weeds on this, but they have made the argument, and I, I think it's a poor argument um, or a specious argument, that the, uh, the drug, uh, that the trial, quote, failed. And it's not that the drug failed, but rather the study failed. So their argument was that, uh, that it shouldn't matter that the study wasn't published because the study really was, was sort of scientifically flawed in retrospect. So we replied back to that letter to the editor that they had written to uh, to the New England Journal and said, well, why not let the academic community make that decision? Why not publish it and then let them decide rather than paternalistically deprive them of the information in the first place? Okay, that's 2008. We come to the more recent meta-analysis and you used FDA reviews of, I think, four recent antidepressants and studied around 30 trials, right? 15 trials had negative and 15 positive outcomes, if I'm not wrong. But so this new review, right? You are doing this again. How have things changed since 2008? What did you find? Well, much smaller uh, sample size of a, a number of uh, yeah, number of drugs, uh, four drugs as opposed to twelve that we that we had in the earlier review. So the uh, the, you know, the pace of you know new antidepressants come on the market has slowed uh, from the uh, uh, the good old days or bad old days, depending on your point of view. It, and so, if you were in a, a smaller number of trials uh, that were uh, that were conducted, um, you know, with that caveat that we're dealing with a smaller uh, smaller data set, we could still see that uh, what was refreshing, in fact, is that there was improvement, uh, bottom line. There was, uh, there's there's going to be a bit of a glass half full, glass half hefty uh, uh, aspect to this. So there was, there were some negative trials that were published and shockingly, they frankly admitted that there were negative trials. Uh, so that occurred in a few cases. Now, there were still some of the, you know, the battle uh, habits of deep sixing, uh, you know, some of the uh, negative trials. That also happened for sure. Uh, and also there was some spin that, that went on in, in, in a few cases as well. So that the old tricks are still in the playbook, but it's refreshing to see a little bit of, you know, of movement uh, towards, uh, towards improvement. So uh, to put numbers on it, uh, we found that the, um, the number of you know, negative trials that were published um, transparently, that were they A, published them, period, and B, admitted that they were negative, uh, that had gone up from the older cohort, the older cohort of trials from the earlier study was 11%, uh, you know, not many trials, but it went up to 47%, so a little shy of, you know, half so that was better. Now the positive trials, well, that's kind of a non-story because, well, of course they're going to be published transparently. So um, moving on to your 2013 paper on publication bias in psychiatry. Um, so you write that publication bias is prevalent in, in psychiatry, in medicine, even in other sciences. Um, but you say it is especially awful and especially rampant in psychiatry. And my question is, what makes psychiatry so uniquely vulnerable to this? It's hard to compare the the, the disciplines. Um, I think 
uh, I don't want to let the other the other disciplines off the hook. I think it's easy to 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 bash on uh, psychiatry uh, and psychology is and because but I think that's you know the old uh, the old joke about the the uh, the street lamp and uh, you know a person's looking for his keys and he's looking under a street lamp and uh, someone wanders by and says, uh, "What are you doing?" He's looking for my keys. And so why are you? Uh, where do you think you dropped them? I think I dropped them about 20 feet away. So why are you looking here? Well, this is where the light is. Um, so in, um, you know, in, mental, in mental health and psychiatry and psychology, I, for whatever reason, uh, most of the attention has been, uh, scrutiny has been uh, in that area. Um, and so, yeah, we shouldn't, uh, I don't think we really know just how bad it is in other areas unless we take a similar look and look at FDA reviews and compare, uh, or or some other some other way of getting at uh, what could be what has been called an inception cohort, uh, looking at all the trials that were initiated, and then track them into the published literature. So the reason I ask is that I think at some point in your paper you do write, and I could be wrong, so I'll take a look at it again. But you do write that psychiatry has had a has at least had a lot more of this, at least maybe because we've studied it more, like you're saying, right? So that's why I was wondering, like, is is there something about mental health or the discipline that it makes it vulnerable to these things? Uh, is there more vagueness or more, I don't know, I mean, the, the bigger philosophical questions of what is, you know, what are we studying and things like that? In 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 comparing different areas within psychiatry, uh, there are some there are some differences, and there's there's more of the publication bias. Well, let's put it that there, looking at antipsychotics, there was there was also publication bias, but there was less of it. Um, but I think the reason for that is that the, there were fewer negative studies. So if we can go back to something I mentioned before about the distinction between. Um, you know, it's not so interesting to look at positive studies because, of course, they're going to be if they're positive. Of course, they're going to be published uh, transparently. There's no there's no need for publication bias. There's nothing to lie about. Uh, put it to put, put it bluntly. It's with the negative studies. So as you look at different drug classes within psychiatry, is you I think there's more of a temptation and a need for publication bias when the studies. The, the more negative studies you, the, uh, you have in that area. So in antipsychotics, you had a smaller proportion of negative studies compared to antidepressants and hence less of the public. You still had a fair amount, mind you. And then to step outside of, you know, into other areas of med clinical medicine, if you have something that just, uh, a, a drug that just works hands down, and there's only, let's say that 95% of the trials are positive and only 5% of the trials are negative. Well, at most, you're going to get a 5% rate of publication bias right there. So basically, it comes down to it's a manifestation of how effective the drugs are. So the more effective the drug, the less need for publication bias. The less effective the drug, the more the need for publication bias. And you can go, well, why, why is a certain class more uh, prone to that? Why, why are there, why is a certain class of drugs less effective? Or why does it, maybe to put it another way, why does it have more trouble separating itself from placebo? And that could be that we're dealing with soft endpoints. 
Uh, for instance, we're dealing with subjective, we're asking questions, how do you rate your level of depression today? How, how is your depressed mood? How is your energy level? Um, how did you sleep last night? All those things come down to the patient telling you or telling the investigator um, reporting subjectively, whereas with, say, blood pressure, you've got a hard endpoint there. Or if you're looking at cholesterol, um, there's there's no sub, there's very little subjectivity, or I don't think there's any subjectivity in your cholesterol level. It's hard to get a placebo effect if you're looking at that. There's another kind of a topic here that we haven't really touched on, the publication bias. The, what is the motivation for it? So one is a lack of efficacy, but the, the other issue is safety. If there's a safety problem, so it could be that the drug works perfectly well, you know, it does what it's supposed to do, but it's, it's not supposed to kill people. I mean, then get kind of deeper into this paper. Um, could you tell us briefly about a couple of different types of biases, right? What are some of the other ways this is done? Well, there's, um, okay, so we talked about non-publication, just simply deep six the trial and uh, uh, various kinds of spin. Um, you mentioned the delay. One can... Um, you know, do statistical statistical alchemy of various sorts. The most common method that we found in the uh, in the earlier paper was to uh, change the way that the dropouts were because people drop out of clinical trials um, uh, always. You never get you start with a certain number. Let's say if you start with a hundred patients, fifty get randomized to drug, fifty get randomized to placebo. I can guarantee you, you're never going to get fifty. If you have an eight week trial, you're not going to get fifty people in each in each group making it to the various, somebody's, you know, people are going to drop out. And, but the question becomes, what do you do with the, the data from the people who drop out? Because people who, st you know, carry on and do, you know, make it to the bitter end, those are, they might pe be people that did particularly well on the drug, for instance. Uh, and if they drop out, maybe it's, you know, the people who had side effects uh, more, or they had less efficacy. So, um, you know, the most common statistical maneuver, if you will, was to simply ignore the people that that dropped out. You, you're not supposed to ignore these people. You're supposed to account for them uh, statistically. All right. So um, let's talk about blame, right? You write that blame for publication bias is complicated and it doesn't just lie in one simple small place and that there are many parties involved. So I want to kind of get a little bit deeper into how do authors and journals and pharmaceuticals or, or medical device industry, right? How do they contribute? In other words, how what does it look like on ground, right? Um, let's say an author conducts a study or a journal receives something. How is it done, really? Well, I think you had uh, touched on, you talked about a, a, a colleague who was um, had you know been uh, disillusioned by the... Uh, what I'll call the game playing um, of you know analyzing, reanalyzing, and 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 I um, saw some of this myself uh, with um, you know before I went to the FDA, it was like um, you know you finished up a study and there was this excitement about you get in the data and you've been working at this you know maybe for a year uh, or 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 longer. Um, and you wonder, well, how you know drum roll, how is this all going to turn out? So you you start. You know, crunching the numbers, and everyone's all excited, and uh, and then say, "Oh shoot, the p-value is not statistically significant. It's instead of being, it's not under 0.05. It's it's uh, it's 0.08. Hmm, gosh, something must be wrong." And 
And what, what did we do? And then he said, well, how about if we look at blah, 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 use this, you know, change this thing about the, you know, do the analysis a little bit differently. And then someone says, well, I'm going to try this over here. And then bingo, P less than 0.05 over here. Oh, cool. It's sort of like a game. And, and I think um, people kind of, you know, geek out on it and, and have take pride in, in being able to massage it into a, a statistically significant finding. But I want to uh, maybe emphasize that it, I think the culture is such that we didn't think that we were doing anything wrong. We just thought this is the way, this is the way it's done. And in so many, I think in many universities and elsewhere, that that's kind of the way that the way the culture has been, that you see your superiors, your, your, the people who have mentored you and they're doing it that way. You think, well, I guess that's the way I'm supposed to do it too. And, uh, and, and then you, you feel like if you get a non-significant finding that somehow you, you have failed, you know, people become attached to their sort of pet ideas as to what, you know, this, this is what I just, in, in fact, they, they, they embarked on this whole study idea because they really believe that this works and this is going to help people. And then if you've worked at this for a year or two years or five years and, and the, suddenly and you, you, you've been going for five years believing that you're going to, you know, you've got something that, that really is going to make a difference and really truly works. And then comes a day when you crunch the numbers and bam, it's not, it, it doesn't work. You, you, it just creates this cognitive dissonance. And, oh, no, and those can't be. No, no. Say it ain't so. Um, it's sort of like uh, Elizabeth Kubler. Kubler-Ross's stages of grief, you know, denial is the first thing. No, it can't be. And then there's bargaining. I think, I think that's right, yes. <laughs> then there's anger. I can definitely see yeah. that. Um, yeah, yeah, okay. Right. Uh, that's, that's a fun way to put and, it. And, and then you send it to the journal. And there, I, I've heard of stories where people will send, you know, something that's, you know, a, a negative study to a journal and they'll just... They won't even review it a lot. They'll, they'll do a desk reject and say, ah, this is, this is of no interest to our you know, clinicians who uh, read our journal. Or if it does get reviewed, they might get feedback from reviewers to say, oh, man, why don't you try this other analysis there? Um, wind up milking out a you know, statistically significant finding, making the silk purse out of the sow's ear or putting lipstick on the pig. Exactly. So again, uh, like you're saying, the, the blame lies uh, with multiple parties out here. But I do want to note this. So this is a little more personal. Um, what made you study this? What made you want to study antidepressant trials and publication bias? Uh, was it a purely academic pursuit? I mean, you said you saw things at the FDA. Or was there also kind of a personal interest in this? Yeah, as I, um, yeah, I, mentioned earlier that I used to work as an FDA reviewer. Um, and at the same time, the other, um, there was another hat that I wore uh, outside and, uh, and outside the FDA. And that was as a, um, I had a private practice on the side. So um, many of my colleagues at the FDA were probably most of them did not have a private practice. And so didn't have the kind of the, didn't identify with clinicians as much. So um being in that role, I was kind of wearing the both you know, both hats, and so I guess having been at 
at NIH, uh, having done research there, I, uh, and then also having the private practice, I thought, well, uh, you know, I should, you know, what's in journal articles is the truth. This is the, this is it, and um, you know here we have access at, at NIH. We have access to uh, you know we're the the bees knees. I think is the old uh, the old saying. Anyway, going going from uh, uh, NIMH to uh, to FDA, I realized I really didn't know. You know, I, I was humbled. I found out that we really didn't know uh, diddly, uh, shall we say. Uh, back at NIH, and so I saw these negative trials, and I thought it was something ethically wrong. You know, what's wrong with this picture? There, there's at the FDA. I'm aware of all these negative trials, and that there's all this information about drugs that the FDA knows, and that the pharmaceutical company knows, but doctors who are prescribing do not know. And I feel that was I was reminded of that when putting on my hat, and then. Um, yeah, my clinician hat. It just seemed wrong that I should have to be operating on this incomplete data. And then later, uh, upon coming to um, uh, out to Oregon and you know, interacting with clinicians, I, there were some a uh, couple of studies. I was trying to get approved by the uh, IRB, and was um, uh, some of them were placebo-controlled trials, and we were told that. Um, uh, you can just forget about it. You're not. We're not going to. We're not going to approve any placebo-controlled trials. And the the reason for that was that they believed that you could, if you had a new a new antidepressant. Say, I'm just use antidepressant as an example. If you show that it works equally to an exi- already approved antidepressant, say Prozac or Zoloft, then by transitivity, it must work too. So you just put up against Prozac or Zoloft or Paxil or whatever, and uh, we and quote we know in quotes we know those work, and so if you show that your new drug performs equally well, then it must work too. And I'd say, and then I would say, well, wait a minute, Prozac, Zoloft, and Paxil don't always work. You say that you know they work, but they often don't be placebo themselves, and they they just sort of rolled their eyes and go, what are you what are you talking about the Journal articles uh, show that they work, and and then I realized that well, of course they believe this because they believe and they've been taught, like we've all been taught in medicine, that journal articles are uh, are the holy grail, and uh, that's the truth with a capital T. And so it made me realize that at some point, you know, no one's going to take my word for it that there are all these negative studies. I have to. Prove it to them, and to prove it to them, I got to get, you know, get something published here. And I'm glad you did. <laughs> so, uh, you you talked about this. Um, so I'm going to actually ask this question right now. Then you talked about wearing this hat as a practicing psychiatrist, as a clinician. Um, so I want to know how do you work with this knowledge about uh, inflated efficacy in your practice, and in other words, how do you deal with patients? on a day-to-day basis, knowing what you know, what does it look like when you have this knowledge and, and you, you're a psychiatrist and you're working with patients? Uh, yeah, I try to be uh, transparent with them and let them know that, um, you know, not to get their hopes up too much, that, that there there is a chance that uh, they may have a wonderful response, particularly if they've never had an antidepressant before. 
But the more trials they've had of antidepressants that haven't worked out, the less likely it is that the next one's going to work out. And let them know that, you know, these, okay, so these drugs work very well for some people, but there's a lot of people for whom they don't work at all. And there's a lot of people in between that, that where they, you get a partial response and, um, you know, you might have to try something else. And I'm guessing it gets even more complicated with all the new research on tapering and withdrawal um, and uh, antidepressant withdrawal, but, you know, which we thought was apparently short-lived and mild, but turns out is not. So um, how do you, is that also information that like needs, that you share with patients and things like that? Uh, yeah, we talk about that as well. And particularly it, 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 that will vary according to which drug we're talking about and uh, some being more prone to withdrawal effects than others. And, and in some cases, I'll say, now, this is a drug you do not want to run out of, you know. <laughs> Can I know which one that is, just in case? <laughs> well, there's a couple of them. There's a quite, I mean, there's, yeah, it's it's more than one. But uh, I, mean, I was thinking of uh, duloxetine. <laughs> yeah, the couple of S SNRIs, duloxetine and, and uh, venlafaxine, uh, Brand name effects or those are a couple, but uh, Paxil's a, a SSRI that's has a very. These are all drugs that have short half lives, um, so that the the blood level will drop rather it will plummet if uh, it will, you know soon after was, you, know, you you take the drug it rises up and then your your body starts processing and getting rid of it and some some drugs your body gets rid of you know rather quickly and and and, and in those cases. You're more prone to withdrawal effects, so uh, you can't. Have, you, you don't want to miss a dose of uh, of those. Thank you, thank you for sharing that. And we've been talking about drugs, but turns out that the problem is not just antidepressants or antipsychotics or psychopharmaceuticals. Uh, you also found that the problem lies with psychological treatments. The problem of publication bias, which makes it seem like it works a lot more than let's say it it might actually. Right? It inflates efficacy. In other words. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this this research work of yours around therapy and psychological treatment, um, and you know, again, publication bias in that? Uh, yeah, this um, in this study, we um, I think the, the the key was to, um, in my opinion, it, it's it's best if you get what's called an inception cohort. I'll use that sort of a technical term, but that's to get evidence of the trial before. Uh, before the study is conducted, because before a study is conducted, everyone believes that it will be positive. They, they you know, there's a high rate of, you know, optimism uh, at that point. And then it's only when later, when they break the blind and they crunch the numbers, and uh oh, it didn't. It, then the, the, the crestfallen is not, you know, everything they've been hoping for all those years is turning out to be all those hopes have been dashed and they're disappointed and so on. But at the beginning of the trial, at the inception of the study, then everyone's optimistic. And that's what we did with the FDA. The, you basically have an inception core because you know, the FDA learns about these studies, these clinical trials of drugs, before they're done. Now, in the case of psychological studies for psychotherapy, there, there is no FDA. Uh, there's no such regulatory authority. Uh, however, um, we were able to use the grant uh, evidence of grants, um, grant funding. So we uh, there's an NIH database uh, called Reporter 
that we were able to um, uh, generate a um, identify a cohort of psychotherapy trials for depression that were conducted, and um, and we could as we had done with the FDA uh, stuff for drugs, we could track these studies and see which ones were published. And we found that uh, there were you know, a number of those psychotherapy trials that were not, were not, had not been published. Yeah, we found that about three quarters of the studies were, were published, which sounds pretty good. And that 23% or, or roughly a quarter uh, were um, were not were not published, so um, you know that that's a fair you know about a quarter of the trials not being published. There was a little tiny uh, a tiny proportion that simply weren't started, but all the other ones were completed. Uh, the vast majority of them were. So um, one limitation of that study is that uh, you know we, we're simply dealing. All we could look at was the fact of publication versus not publication, and what we couldn't find out was about spin. Whereas we could, with the drugs and looking at FDA, you could say, okay, the FDA got this result, non-significant, but somehow they're coming up with a statistically significant result in the publication. We could not do that with these psychotherapy trials. So uh, I think it was, it our, our results were actually paint a rosier picture uh, or it, it should be a worse picture than than what we were what we were showing because surely there's some of those trials that were uh, not all the ones that were published were published exactly um, the way you know, they should have been so uh, you saying that just reminded me because I had read about this and this is I think a 2020 study where uh, it happened in Germany, am I right? Yeah, Marlene Stoll um, led the research, University of Medical Center, Mainz in Germany, and they actually did find um, a bunch of spin in the results of specifically psychotherapy. So we have seen that, you know, publication bias in drug trials, publication bias in psychotherapy trials, um, and even your other work that showed that even meta-analyses, like often, they're not perfect. They, uh, they often don't report conflicts of interest that are there in the studies that they're studying. All of this together, let's come down to the real world effects of this, right? What are the real world consequences of publication bias? Um, of clinicians and researchers thinking that something works when it doesn't. I mean, what are the effects for patients and what are the real world effects of this? That's it. Well, there will be, um, we talked about we just touched on it briefly. There are the, the two major you know, domains of, of uh, t- the way to think about drugs or any intervention for that matter is efficacy, does it work, and safety. You know, are there, are there harms? So there's this, in the, in the clinical world, uh, the, clinician, um, the clinicians talk about the risk-benefit ratio when they, before they prescribe, and we'll discuss, uh, we talked a few minutes ago about you know, side effects and disclosing that with the patient. You say, okay, here's here's what you can expect from an efficacy standpoint. If if it works, you know, how how likely is it'll work? But also, what are the potential downsides and what are the odds of that? So um, the problem, one of the problems with I mean, what publication bias will do, it will tend to exaggerate the benefits and downplay the harms. So you wind up with this perceived risk-benefit ratio that is overly rosy. Um, and so that is what's going to get communicated to 
uh, clinicians that are prescribing the drugs and then gets uh, then relayed on to the patient. So you, you wind up with uh, more prescribing than is, uh, is warranted or a, a lack of vigilance for, uh, for harms and, you know, s- slash side effects. So, you know, when you were doing all of this work, um, did you ever just meet clinicians who just didn't believe, like, the work that you were doing? I'm wondering, like, how does this affect clinicians, right? Um, so we just talked about how this affects patients, but what are clinicians doing when they, when they find out about the kind of research that you have done? Uh, what is their response? What, how does it affect them in their practice? I'd say this general area of research uh, of um, could be falls under the umbrella of meta meta research or research about research, and uh, I'm uh, I, I worry that a lot of clinicians don't know about it. Uh, in fact, I'm not sure there are a lot of researchers. Once you get out of the area of meta research, talk to some people, and they'll uh, they kind of they might go, huh. Um, what are you what are you talking about? Um, I think there's less of that, and um, you, you either get, I think you either get a huh, like I didn't know that was happening, or you get oh yeah, of course that happens, <laughs> and everyone everyone knows about that. Um, but I don't know if there's uh, if it translates into um, you know kind of critical thinking when it comes to consuming information. I think we and at least in the U.S. we We've got these commercials on on TV, and for and in the case of drugs, we got direct to consumer advertising, and you kind of um, you just know that if soap is advertised on TV and they tell you it's the best ever, you kind of roll your eyes and say, "Well, of course they would say that." You know, they're they're trying to sell soap, but then when you see a drug ad and or you go to a conference and you hear someone uh, a key opinion leader abbreviated KOL, talking about some drug, there's probably not enough of critical thinking, well, wait a minute, uh, this guy's uh, uh, funded, you know, paid for uh, to come here by such and such a drug company. So maybe maybe that's why he's saying such wonderful things about this drug. Maybe I shouldn't be so quick to to, uh, prescribe it. So somehow people put drugs... Uh, in healthcare, in general, on a pedestal, it's like you know. But there are incentives and motives that that go on that um, that we don't hesitate to question or occurring in the real world. I mean, in, in the outside world, outside of healthcare. But when it comes to healthcare, oh, they wouldn't. It, it must if it's in a journal article, it must be true. It's it's peer reviewed, and so there's this naivety, naivete about. Healthcare in general, and about something being a peer-reviewed journal that it has somehow been blessed and sanctified, and is not to be questioned. So tell us about since we're talking about this, right? And, and this was my training too in undergrad and masters. It wasn't until I reached my PhD work that um, the questions of you know critiquing the, even that what peer-reviewed is, where does money come from, how is research conducted, and all of that those questions came up. Can you tell us about a little bit about the flaws that you see in the way peer-reviewed research is done? I, I think that the biggest flaw comes in this, and it comes back to this issue of of timing. Um, and I talked about the importance of in in th- in doing this kind of research is identifying an inception cohort. And why is that important? That's important because bef- at study inception, before the study is done, 
everyone's optimistic and everyone believes that they're going to have positive results. The, the writing up of the manuscript occurs at a much later time point. So the study has been initiated, the data has been collected, uh, you know, all um, the, the, the analyses have been, have been uh, run and rerun and rerun uh, until a statistically significant effect has been, has been found. And then, then the writing starts, okay, now we have something that's, quote, publishable, which is a real problematic word. Uh, the belief that you can't publish it unless it's statistically significant. And then, you, then it gets submitted to a journal. So, you know, the writing and the reviewing um, and the publication decisions are made at a point that follows the um, after you know the results. It's knowledge of the results that's critical. And if you can eliminate knowledge of the results as being a deciding factor as to whether it gets published or not, that, in my opinion, is, um, I don't know if the one and only key, but it's is probably the biggest key in in my uh, in my opinion. So, um, correct me if I'm wrong, because my knowledge around this might not be uh, great. But trials need to be registered, right? And but just because trials are registered right at the beginning doesn't mean they have to be published. That's the big thing. What do you think would happen if we just forced trials to be published? Do you think that would be one way? Like it doesn't matter if you're registered; you have to at least publish your results. It depends on what you mean by published. If you mean published in a journal article, true, they do not have to be published. But the results do, by law, have to be posted on the on the clinicaltrials.gov. So I don't think many clinicians have thought about going to clinicaltrials.gov, for instance, and looking for results of clinical trials. They know about journal articles. They all know about journal articles. But have they ever thought of looking at clinicaltrials.gov. It doesn't tell you a story the way uh, it, it doesn't have the storytelling uh, panache that a journal article does. Now, the other approach uh, that I um, wanted to touch on, though, there is one that reviewing is done in two stages, once before, uh, before the study is even conducted, and then later there's a stage two review, a stage two review done after the results are in. But the publication decision is made before the study is conducted. I mean, it, it is it, the peer review takes place at stage one and stage two, and a decision is made as to whether it should be published at stage one before the study is done. And that's called registered reports. And that is an effort that's led by uh, a, um, a psychologist at, the, in, at uh, Cardiff uh, University in Wales. So in the first stage, then I'm guessing um, you basically look at the design and the, and the method and everything and you decide whether it's worthy of publication based on that and not the results, right? Okay, got it. Okay. Yes. And to me, I think that, that, that's where the decision should be made because you, you're making all the decisions, okay, we're going to use, you know, this is how many patients we want to recruit. Uh, this is you know, these are the methods that we're going to use. We're going to use these statistical tests. All those decisions can be made and, and are generally made. They, they, they are always made up front anyway. And in the case of grants, uh, grant, grant uh, 
uh, you know, funding agencies decide whether to fund something based upon a protocol as well. So there's no reason that a publication decision can't be made. Then, so there, you, there, right there, you can determine: is this good science? Is the are the methods good? The decision as to whether it's good science shouldn't depend upon whether the results turned out to be statistically significant or not. This this has been great. Thank you so much. I I the examples and I learned things that. Um, deeply horrified me, but uh, it was very enjoyable as those two things go together sometimes. Uh, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.